Leaders Talk, the interview podcast portraying leaders who are committed to better leadership, better organizations, and a better world. Powered by Leadership Choices. We love Ukraine. I have to tell you this. We Russians love Ukraine. There is not one family who does not have friends, family, our languages. We understand each other when we speak, you know, in Russian or Ukrainian. Our cultures are intertwined. We eat the same food. To me, you know, um, I can't say this is a civil war because it's a different nation, but it, 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 it's still a fraternal war. And then there is the thoughtful process of like, of I want to build a long-term peaceful future, you know? And I am being prevented from doing that. Welcome to Leaders Talk, the biographical interview podcast for better leadership, better organizations, and a better world. My name is Carsten Jart, and I'm one of the managing partners of Leadership Choices. My guest today is Anna Kirin. Anna Kirin is a business leader. She's president of CBSD Thunderbird Russia, and she's located in Moscow. And I'm talking to her about her role um, in CBSD about how she became the president of this organization and also how she sees the situation uh, right now with the war ongoing between Russia and Ukraine. Um, uh, Anna is taking a, a risk in talking to us um, because obviously um, public um, opinions or public statements labeling this special operation of war um, can be very problematic for, for public people like her. So I think Anna is a very brave person and uh, she will also um, to tell us about her own story. She <clears throat> started her life as a refugee herself who had to flee uh, Russia uh, together with her mother. She grew up in the, in the US in North Dakota um, and she studied there in, in Washington uh, and in New York City, and then came back as a um, grown-up woman in her 20s uh, to rediscover Russia um, for herself. And she takes us on a journey, how this country has developed, how this country has changed, how she sees the situation. Um, again, a very um, transparent, uh, open, um, in, in a vulnerable uh, way, which I... Um, admire a lot of which I have tons of respect uh, for. And this is precisely what we want to achieve with this podcast, to really listen carefully about what people have to say, how leaders um, react in difficult circumstances, um, what are their opinions, what are their thoughts, how do they reflect themselves. Um, so this is really um, a pivotal um, podcast for me, a pivotal episode, um, because that's the first time that we are, you know, having such a inside view into the psychology of a war um, with the two podcasts, one with Olga Vasilets and now with Anna Kirin. So they somehow kind of belong together. And um, yeah, so 
I think this uh, podcast is a little longer, but it's, I think, worth every minute. I'm also looking forward to your thoughts. So please share your reflections with us at uh, Leaders Talk at leadership-choices.com. So the email address is Leaders Talk, one word, leadership-choices.com. And now let's get right into the conversation with Anna. A very warm welcome to Anna Kirin. Anna, welcome to the show. Welcome, everyone. Anna, where are you dialing in from? Where do we find you right now? I am sitting in my house in the suburbs of Moscow. And you are the president of CBSD Thunderbird. Can you can you tell us about this organization a little bit? About CBSD. Um, CBSD was an organization founded in 1994 with the mission of educating young Russian management. And this was the time when large multinationals were just entering the Russian market and they were faced with a, uh, with a problem of where do you find management talent? Because experienced people either had a lot of non-relevant baggage from from back from the Soviet Union, there was no business schools, and uh, uh, young managers were not educated. And where would they get the information? So, uh, CBSD stands for Center for Business Skills Development, and the idea was to train high potential Russian middle management. To, uh, to bring them into leadership positions in their companies as they're being hired. And the mission was to bring best global practices to, to Russia as the uh, market economy was just emerging. And uh, it is still our mission. Uh, in 1996, uh, CBSD was acquired by Thunderbird School of Global Management for $1. And uh, they joke it was the best investment Thunderbird ever made. But uh, we're still on that mission. We're, we're still uh, dedicated to bringing best global leadership practices to Russia with the mission of educating humanistic, globally-minded leaders in this country. And, and Anna, and we will come to, to CBSC and the mission a bit more, um, but you, are, you have a very unique history. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, from listening to you, it sounds a little bit like a U.S.-American accent. And so it makes me wonder, where is this coming from? So tell us that story. How come that you are also on that intersection between Russia and in the United States? Uh, well, in the 1970s, my mother was exiled from the Soviet Union. Uh, she was exiled for helping Russian unofficial nonconformist artists. And basically her help amounted to the fact that we had two rooms in a communal apartment, but in a very unique building in the center. And, uh, and she basically, by chance, she met uh, 
some of these people through friends of hers uh, at an exhibition, which is a very famous actually event in Russia where uh, artists who, who were unofficial, they were not allowed to, to exhibit officially and to make money and to sell their paintings. So as a sign, if not maybe a protest, but just basically they, they picked an area on the outskirts of Moscow where they said, we'll just put up our paintings here and invite anybody who wants to, to see them. And that uh, event was... Uh, it's now known as the bulldozer exhibition built because bulldozers came to, and they trampled over paintings and artists and people to, to, to um, basically to end the event. <laughs> and my mother was by chance at that protest and, and she, she was, she ended up in a militia station to together with some of the, uh, together with a group of artists who helped organize this and she kind of said, well, if I live in the center of Moscow, um, you can hang your paintings up on my walls anytime you want. And uh, this was a start of her activity as a promoter of Russian unofficial art. There were a lot of people who went through our house uh, and uh, she did this for six years. And this, this ended with her being, uh, with her being beaten, uh, arrested. Uh, unfortunately, her pregnancy ended at that time, um, and uh, our fire, uh, our apartment was set on fire. Oh my God! And, and <laughs> um, she was arrested at a time when Brezhnev and Carter had a summit in Vienna. And uh, her name was on the list of people discussed during the human right, rights agenda. And when Brezhnev came back to Moscow, she was basically released from prison and given 10 days to leave the country. Uh, so uh, stripped of her Soviet citizenship, she, she ended up by invitation with her friends in North Dakota. That's where I grew up. Mm -hmm. um, and. Uh, she basically, you know, um, she felt her life ended at that point because she she never wanted to immigrate. She didn't actually speak English language very well, so so it was a very difficult position for her to to find herself as a refugee, basically, uh, in uh, in in a foreign country, and. Um, and uh, she also felt that she, she, um, you know, her life had a meaning before that. And uh, and when she came to the United States, it was more about survival. It was more about you know fi finding means for livelihood, learning the language. She actually did a great job. Uh, she um, she learned the language. She she got admitted to University of North Dakota, where she studied political science for a while, and she started her own uh, uh, fashion design business. Wow! With which we moved to Washington D.C. and actually Nancy Reagan once wore one of her dresses. Wow. <laughs> uh, but uh, that was cut short because uh, unfortunately she fell ill and she died very young and. Uh, 
she she died when I was 19 years old, and she she never got to see the disintegration of the Soviet Union. She never she she kind of I don't know. It it was one of the biggest losses in my life. Her 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 uh, her parting because we were very close and we had survived this whole trauma together, and we were kind of. You know our, our our support for each other in life, and she she was really a role model for me in, in so many ways. I, I can't tell you, but that's how I ended up growing up and being educated in the United States. Anna, how old were you when you arrived in the U.S.? I was six. Okay, wow. So total restart also for you. Um, what, was it just the two of you? Were there more in the family? And a dog. <laughs> and a suitcase of things. Okay. So you too have been a refugee then? Basically, yeah. Okay. And then how did things unfold for you? Um, well, I... Before, uh, you know, when my mother was still alive, I, I went to, uh, there's a wonderful uh, school in Washington, D.C. It, it, it's called the Duke Ellington School of the Arts. That's where I went to high school. And afterwards, I went to NYU and studied uh, playwriting and directing. And, and I went to Sorbonne, and I, I was actually very creatively and um, but then as my mother fell, uh, you know, as my mother's uh, illness was developing, I came back to Washington, D.C. and I went to University of Maryland, which was close by. Uh, and I decided that um, the theater world was just way too shallow for me. <laughs> I, I wanted to do something more serious. So I started doing macroeconomics and I was always... Uh, 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 I studied journalism uh, because I, I I always had in mind that as, as part of my life work, I want to do something for my home country. And uh, then after the the, the 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 disintegration of the Soviet Union, I you know I already had my degrees from University of Maryland, and I, I'm. I had an opportunity to come back to Moscow, which I just immediately, Carson, um, it, 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 was an, it was a decision that I really jumped on, despite the fact that it took a lot of thought. Because before she died, my mother told me, you know, she said, never, never go back to to the Soviet Union. Of course, she never knew how the the, the situation was going to develop, but she said, you, you have the opportunity to grow up and live with freedoms and liberties and never risk those, never risk those, never come back to Russia, no matter what, you will want to. But uh, so, so I, I knew that I was making a choice to go back to Russia that was against my mother's dying wish, basically. And uh, and still, I made that choice. Uh, I I felt that um, 
fulfilling her dying wish was not as important as was I could do. And I was young. I was in my 20s. Um, I, I really thought, here I am, I'm going to contribute to the development of this country. This is my chance for a meaningful life. This is what I'm going to be doing. I'm, I'm, I, I was very idealistic. I, 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 I really wanted to be part of history, if you will. I wanted to be a witness to history. I wanted to see how the country was developing. I was saying, okay, my mom had no idea that the Soviet Union was going to fall apart. So, so I'll go ahead and, you know, th this, is, this is my life, basically. And this is what I'm going to do with it. And I came back to, to Moscow uh, being a project manager for technology transfer projects basically serving as a uh, compliance project manager. You know, the, the, there were these big complicated agreements that were part of joint ventures. And my job was just basically make sure that each, the letter of the agreement is being followed by all parties, that people understand the language right. Uh, pretty, pretty interesting job it was. I once accompanied a small satellite engine to from Russia to the United States. <laughs> wow. Mm -hmm. um, but in any way, it was a small company that, that uh, served its purpose at a particular time in, um, in, in the development of the history of this country. And then, and, and then it went away. And, Afterwards, you know, it was an assignment I went back with for one year. Afterwards, you know, and I'm still here in Russia. <laughs> so you came back 93. That's four years after um, kind of the Iron Curtain fell. Mm -hmm. um, how was it to be in Russia at that time, to be in Moscow, to be more precise? What was, what, what's the, what was the spirit like? Um. It was very, well, first of all, I was young. So obviously those were the best of times. Um, but it was, it was very opportunistic, uh, wild, a little bit out of control. You basically uh, could do anything. Um, if, if you had an entrepreneurial spirit into Uh, very large enterprises that that grew later into very large enterprises. Um, that was not definitely not my path, you know, um, because it was not my goal to build a business, especially the way 90s were. You know, people are uh, in Russia. There is a lot of right now talk about how the 90s were just criminal and were, were awful times. Um, They weren't. They were very uh, anarchistic, if you will. Anything was possible, but they were very free. It's like you really felt like you could do anything. You could say anything. You could live any kind of life you want. Mm -hmm. And obviously, um, any uh, situation where you have little control bears its own risks. And obviously, there were, uh, there were a lot of criminal activities going on, but not for the average person who, you know, the streets were safe. Um, it was 
a very a risky time to to get into your own business. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know I have a lot of friends, you know, who who survived, you know, mach- raids with and all that um, kind of stuff. But no, it was it was just uh, a time where you really felt that anything is possible. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and then tell us how you. Uh, joined or how you came across CBSD. Uh, there were some steps in between, right? Well, yeah, I, w- I worked for a company called Scala CIS. Uh, it, 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 it's a Swedish company. It's a Swedish uh, software enterprise management company. It's a, uh, and, and they were very young at that time. They, they now, I believe, operate under a different name. Um, but um, I, I just went in there as an administrative manager, and uh, I ended up doing a lot of localization work projects for, for, for them in localizing the software into Russian languages. And actually, the, the way I came to CBSD was a very funny story. Uh, it was, I was, doing, I, I was doing a lot of projects where I came in doing needs assessment for potential clients, like do they really need an ERP? Do they, um, you know, what kind of a situation is this? Is this is uh, implementation of an ERP software something the company really needs? And I went uh, and talked with my predecessor, uh, the, the 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 finance director, the CFO of Scala, fully under under the impression that this was a potential client interview. And he was looking at the same time, he had an ad placed for his replacement. And he was uh, under the understanding that he was interviewing me for his job. (laughs) (laughs) And so I came in and uh, this interview was, was, was very funny. I mean, actually, uh, you know, you, people should take lessons how to go into a job interview because I came in with a bunch of questions that were basically the right question to ask if you're applying for a CFO position, you know, the size of your operations, uh, what kind of operations, what, what, what's your document flow, what, what, what are your compliance procedures, you know, what, what are you doing, what kind of reporting do you have, et cetera, et cetera. And I had a, a, a list of about 25 questions that I wanted to go through with him. And I was wondering, wow, what, what a strange man. Why is he asking me about my background? And I'm like, okay, maybe you know, he, he's interested. I'm just such a fine, interesting person. He's probably just curious to know about me. But this is going really strangely. <laughs> And afterwards, he called me and he said, I want you to come in and meet our president. And I thought, this is really strange. This is quite unusual for for a small size business for, 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 you know, I'm basically uh, just a representative of a company they're looking at to implement uh, financial software. Why would a president want to meet me? 
And uh, I came and for the first time I met uh, my ex-boss and a wonderful person. And he became one of my life teachers, I think, Dennis Hoppel. He is the first president of CBSD. And he turned out to be a lot sharper than than the, his CFO. And very quickly on, he figured out this was not a job interview. <laughs> and, and we got talking and... Um, and uh, he called me a little bit later and he said, Anna, I know you're, you were coming in with a different purpose, but would you like the CFO position at CBSD? Because just from our conversation, I figured you're the type of person we need, inquisitive, uh, with the right values, uh, and with the right mindset to, to get this operation going and i said no dennis no it's the middle of summer i i this is the time i spend with um, my daughter was five years old at that time my oldest daughter and this is the time i want to spend with her and 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 i have no accounting background I, I, you know, I, I understand finance only as far as my MBA is, con- is concerned and, and, and implementation of ERPs. I, 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 I am not qualified. And he said, accounting, we have staff. We'll teach you what you need to know. Uh, anything else, Thunderbird, people will help you. Because he said, what you're talking about as far as qualifications are concerned, those are teachable, but we can't teach people a mindset. And, and he basically talked me into coming in and trying to live with CBSD. I really thought this was not going to work out. And this was 1999. We're 2022 right now. <laughs> but uh, CBSD was a kind of organization, Karsten. I mean, it was the kind of organization where Dennis handpicked people who worked in it, who loved its mission. And working in this organization, first of all, you're always working among people who are not necessarily like you, but they're, but, but they're like-minded in values mm-hmm. and where they want to go and the changes they want to make. And the kind of difference they want to make with the client. And obviously, since I came in with a different type of background, very quickly I was involved in all kinds of operations in CBSD because my job, I felt, was to help the organization grow. Uh, so so I... I just got myself involved into all aspects of this, of managing this company. And, you know, under the pretext, everything has to do with finance. (laughs) And, um, and I, I loved it. You know, I, I never wanted to do anything else. I, I just figured this was such an amazing opportunity to actually make the difference. I was thinking about, you know, it's not education is such an amazing field. Um, it's such, it's the field where you can actually make a difference if you don't have the ambition to become a politician or part of a, some kind of a government structure or, a, um, or an activist or a social activist. 
it's the perfect field to be in where you feel that you can make a difference by affecting one person at a time. So that means young managers, men and women would come to you, would participate in classes and courses, in curricula to train business skills, leadership skills, self-reflection, um, self-management, that kind of things. Yeah, we, we specialize in soft skills development. So it's communication, it's building teams, it, it's growing your subordinates, it's uh, making your teams capable. Uh, it, it's reaching results through uh, effective people leadership. <laughs> And, and, and uh, actually, when we became part of, you know, a partner of Ken Blanchard companies, one of the reasons this is one of our most successful partnerships throughout the history of CBSD, and, and we partner with a lot of uh, international companies, but the Ken Blanchard companies, because the missions are similar. You affect one leader at a time, and each leader affects the teams around them. And this is the way you bring sustainable prosperity worldwide. And, and that mission uh, is so similar to, to what CBSD was doing uh, that it became a very long-term and successful partnership, very close-knit in spirit. And then there are also you are also part of the American Chamber of Commerce, which is also kind of a bridge between the two worlds. Can you tell us about that? Well, we're not part of the American Chamber of Commerce. Uh, let me just a small correction here. Uh, CBSD has been a member since the mid nineteen nineties, um, and uh, but I serve on the board now of AmCham and AmCham's mission uh, is a completely apolitical organization. Uh, it is, its mission is to help businesses, not necessarily American, but uh, all cross-border businesses in Russia be successful. Um, and, uh, and, and, AmCham operates, it works closely with the Russian government. It also clo works closely with the U.S. government. It, it helps promote business interests of global companies. Mm. So its members are uh, over 400 right now in, in, in Russia. Uh, they're, you know, from large to, you know, oil companies, large energy companies to, to small uh, companies such as CVSD, like educational providers, but AmCham is, uh, helps serve their interests in Russia. Understood. And, and then, Anna, in 2014, I believe, you became president of CVSD. So how did that happen? Uh, well, as I said, I was involved in a lot of aspects of running CVSD before that. Uh, when Dennis Hoppel retired, uh, Thunderbird actually uh, sent another, um, th actually Christopher Lee was another president between Dennis and myself. Uh, he served uh, as, as CVSD president from, 19, uh, from 2010 to 2014. 
he was the CFO at Thunderbird, so we we uh, found a lot in common. Uh, and and then in 2014, Thunderbird was becoming part of ASU, and and Christopher Lee was going back to the United States, and they were looking for somebody on the ground who who could. Uh, who could take on the role of the president of CBSD. And um, I, you know, I was a natural choice at that time. It wasn't like a, a road because I was involved in so many aspects of operational management and in so many aspects of uh, business development initiatives that were being built. And I knew the market. I, I, I had the trust of the employees. Uh, I, um, you know, I had a personal relationship with many clients. So it was just a, a natural evolution, Karsten. Mm -hmm. So, and then we are at 2014. That means we're looking back at, back at many decades. How had the business climate changed in Russia, in Moscow, by the time you became president? How would you describe that change so that we can feel it maybe? Well, you know, the, Russia has certainly evolved since 1994. Um, and it, you could actually, and, and CBSD survived many of its crises. And I think one of the reasons we survived, 1998 is the default. 2008 is the global financial crisis. 2014 is the post-Crimean Uh, political and the first crisis of the sanctions. Um, but what I could see evolving from the 1990s is that, uh, well, I can tell you in our field, in the field of talent development, 1990s, we worked mostly with multinationals who, 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 who had a very clear objectives. We need to replace the pool of expats who are very expensive, and, but who, who, who bring the global management and leadership expertise to Russia, but they don't know the local nuances. They don't speak the language, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and in the middle like in 2005, 2006, what we could see is Russian business evolving. Uh, we could see that the Russian business as opposed to poaching talent started developing their own and investing in their own talent development. And actually, and the business world was becoming more regulated. It was more controlled. Um, there was a, a March, much bigger level of government involvement. And at one point it was actually good, you know, it, there, there's a balance there because that, that world of chaos and anarchy, which I told you about that, that was becoming, you know, it, it was a much more, um, it, it, an environment where you could forecast a lot easier. It, it, you, you could do prognosis for, for the more than six months. You could actually do real strategic planning. So, so it was becoming a more stable business environment, more transparent in many ways. And giving, given all the nuances of particular Russian 
government legislative process, but it, it was it, it was an evolution of a market economy, really. And and, and large Russian corporations um, started running themselves more like Western multinationals. Mm. Their HR departments, I have to say, and, and T&D departments were probably some of the most professionally run in the world uh, with very well-educated, very bright uh, HRs and, and professionals in their field, you know, very educated, very erudite, if you will, well-read uh, they, 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 they well, are very curious about what's going on in the world. The, the corporate university of Zbir, uh, Zbirbank, um, is probably one of the um, most advanced, innovative corporate universities in the world. Wow. Um, with, with a large campus. Um, so, so this was... You know, we could gradually see a shift from our client base where it was 95% multinationals to um, to nowadays where it's about 70% Russian companies. Understood. Okay. Okay. And um, so then when you took over, um, there was this, we call it invasion of Crimea. I'm not sure what the official term is in, in Russia, but... Uh, there was the first kind of touch point, so that is a coincidence. Reunion. Reunion. Okay. Reunion. <laughs> okay. Um, and, and, and so, and then we have this situation where we actually kind of reached out and connected. Now, during this war or special operations or however it's it's called, um, which also affects you because in many ways, one way is that CBSD Thunderbird had a team on the ground in the Ukraine. So you're actually working with people in Ukraine. And then there's obvi obviously the climate, the business climate, the effects of the sanctions uh, that are kicking in. So maybe talk us through how is the situation for you right now? Unspeakable. Yeah, it, it's very hard to speak on the subject. Uh, when... The Crimean situation happened. You know, it it um, it was different. It it actually um, sent a very fine divide line among Russian population. You know, but I I actually have a house in Crimea, Karsten, uh, and I I um, bought it together with my sister in two thousand two. So way before mm -hmm. any of those events. Um, and I was, you know, I have neighbors there. I, I, I have a, a small life in Crimea. Um, I, I know the people there, uh, and it's, I, I think very few people in the West realize that 70% of Crimean population is Russian. Um, the, the next group is Tartars. Uh, Ukrainians are only third. Um, nobody in Crimea spoke Ukrainian. And I know, and it's not just the neighbors, you know, there, there's, I spend so much time in Crimea. 
Uh, I know there are people who definitely didn't want uh, Russians to, or they didn't welcome Russians. But um, I also know for a fact that um, most people in Crimea, by far, by far, not like 55%, but close to probably the results of the referendum that they ran, um, were, they, 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 they really welcomed Russians in there. Um, and um, they wanted the language. Because the, the, the Ukrainians asked Russians to translate their last names, which was very funny because the languages, they were, they're so, uh, they have the same roots. And, and some words have a different, you know, they have one meaning in Russian and another meaning in Ukrainian. So there are all kinds of, but, but they sound the same. So there are all kinds of like funny nuances that are linguistic. And there were a lot of language issues. I, I actually think it's one of the main issues that uh, uh, the reason the, the Crimean population actually welcomed Russia. I, 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 I actually, I don't want to go there, but I, I think the management of the language situation could have been handled better. And so, so a lot of Crimeans and a lot of Russians just thought this was, this was historically justified. This was needed. The Crimean population needed it. And there was a lot of support for it in Russia. Um, and it, it actually, you know, this is when we, we, we began to saw like what was going wrong uh, in, in the policy, because no matter how you justify the territorial Crimean pretensions of Russia, the way Crimea was made part of the official Russian territory, it, it, it was legally done wrong. It, it, it was done by force. It, it, it was done. Uh, so, so no matter how, so, so, but, but because the, the support for it was so strong in the hearts of the Russian population and Crimean population, people just closed their eyes. They're like, okay. And the sanctions that were imposed, it was like, okay, um, um, we can live with those. And obviously compared to what's happening now, they were baby sanctions. And, um, but, but, you know, Crimea is part of our Russia. Crimea is part of our world. Crimea, you know, we're doing the right thing. This was the, 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 uh, the, the, uh, the emotion behind it. Yeah. I'm, I'm just trying to, but, to you. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Anna. Yeah. 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 Uh, but it's completely different from what's happening now. Mm -hmm. it, it's, yeah, go ahead. Just go ahead. to find a comparison. So, I mean, a lot of Germans, a lot of English people, they travel to Mallorca. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of German people living in Mallorca. There's, there's a lot of English people living there. There's places where you can speak English in the pub. There's places where you can speak German in the pub. Um, but what needs to happen, I mean, I think 
And sometimes Mallorca is put as a German county, you know, on a map, like more for fun than for actual a real ambition. So I'm wondering what needs to happen so that a country would say, no, no, this is ours now. I mean, we don't share. This is ours. We take it. So what, what was the, I'm trying to understand the soul of the country, of the people in Russia to say, now that is a good thing. For Crimea, you mean? Mm -hmm. For Crimea, I think Russians really felt it, it was just always part of Russia. You know, the, the, that it was a historical, uh, a historical, not even mistake, but just a historical circumstance gone wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and when you when you have a population that really wants to be part of Russia as well, uh, because Crimea was it, it, it was when Crimea became part of Ukraine, it was all part of one big country. Uh, it, it was, I don't remember the exact date, I, I believe in the 50s, um, where Khrushchev kind of said, okay, we're going to redraw the border uh, and make Crimea part of the Ukrainian Republic and not part of the Republic of the Russian Federation, which he was part of. And he did it for many, 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 many reasons. And I am definitely not the right expert to talk to about that. Um, I, I'm sure there, there's plenty written, but he did it for logistical reasons, for convenience reasons, for, for, for financial reasons. It, it, it was administrative management. That, that's the way a lot of people interpret it. It's not my point of view. I have, you know, as I said, I'm not, I'm no expert. So, so a lot of the interpretation was that it was an administrative management part of you. And, and when the agreement was signed, where the republics became, the Soviet Union republics became independent states, uh, it it, the general thinking was, again, I'm not, stating an opinion here, I'm just saying that the, that's the general emotion and the general thinking is they just did, did it so quickly. They didn't have the time to think about Crimea specifically, because at the time, if they had thought this through, if they had taken months to negotiate the agreement, obviously they would have renegotiated Crimea and gone with it anyway, because They wanted to be independent, and it was a logically historical step. So if this happened now, it was just a correction of a circumstance, of a mistake, of an administrative mistake of the past. That's, okay. you know, that's the way a lot of people were thinking. And here is a little announcement about activities that we are doing in conjunction with the war in Ukraine. Um, we, have, we have joined forces with the International Coaching Federation Germany, and we are offering free business coaching for people who had to flee Ukraine. That includes every nationality who had to flee Ukraine. Um, people can simply reach out uh, via email, and we will match you to a coach to help you uh, in this current situation. Mm -hmm. Um, and we do this and we can do this because 
um, in the International Coaching Federation is joining the initiative or we are joining their initiative and we have a piece of technology that helps us to scale. And this is our digital coaching platform, Cosmic, uh, which consists of a management platform and also a coaching app, a Cosmic coaching app, which enables the communication, the matching, uh, the appointment booking with your coach. So if we didn't have that, we would not be able to manage the demand and match all the all the coaches because that's a lot of work to do this manually. So I'm super happy that we are able to do this. And on the other hand side, we have decided as a company, as long as the war pertains to offer weekly impulses every Friday morning at eight, they are called impulses for peace and against fear. Um, they are open for everybody. You find the, um, the details of the event on our website www.leadership-choices.com right on the front page scroll down to events and there you see all the events like the um, impulses for peace but also our conferences uh, where you can uh, enroll and where you can register um, and now back to the fascinating discussion with Anna and now we are eight years later um, and in February, the um, invasion started. Um, I think nobody here was expecting that. I mean, I certainly wasn't expecting it. I was like, yeah, yeah, sure, they're talking about that. But, you know, this is just, you know, part of a big uh, theater play to put on pressure and, and all of that. And then, you know, the news broke you know, Russia started to invade Ukraine. Um, how, what were you thinking? What were you feeling? I can tell you we weren't expecting it either. Uh, just, you know, the, when two days before the invasion, um, on February 22nd, I think, Putin said, you know, signed the, 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 the official recognition of DNS LNS states. Um, what does that mean? Well, it, he said, because these were the territories in the Ukraine, which were being disputed and actually had an internal conflict in the Ukraine. Uh, and he, when he signed a declaration recognizing their independence, and not part of the Ukraine, everybody was, you know, the question which you're asking, everybody was asking themselves, what does that mean? Well, you, you know, and at that point, actually, my husband and I, we, we had uh, a, a, a serious long conversation about it. I said, that means they're going to invade Ukraine because they're, that, that's the first step. And my husband is like, no, no way. And uh, so even at that point, two days prior to the invasion, when, when it was clear that Putin had begun the, the process, um, we still couldn't believe it. We still couldn't believe it. You know, we, um, and even though we had this conversation with my husband, like, that means he's going to invade Ukraine. And my husband was saying, no, it was not something fathomable. Uh, 
and just like you, just like you, we, 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 we thought this was, you know, um, somehow, somehow the, the, the intelligence services, the diplomacy gone wrong, uh, when, um, when us was saying, you know, Russia is preparing to invade Ukraine, every analytic I listened to in Russia or in the West was saying, no, it's not in uh, Russia's best interest. It's not in Putin's best interest, regardless of their political position, regardless of their uh, love or, or hate for Putin, regardless, every single person you could, with analysis, who could provide any kind of a meaningful uh, thought on the matter was saying, it's not in anybody's best interest. Russia is not going to invade the Ukraine. And Putin was declaring very, you know, on the to the Russian people and to the world that he, they have no intention of invading Ukraine. It, it is still hard to believe that that kind of a uh, that 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 kind of a rhetoric is possible in the modern world where your intention is obviously clear and two days later you're doing the opposite thing. Um, you, you know, the, the, the feelings of unbelief, outrage, um, indignation. I, I, I can't begin, Karsten, to, to tell you that the mix of emotions uh, that is within the, um, the, 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 uh, the hearts of everyone here. And in my immediate surroundings, uh, you know, among my close friends, I actually don't know anyone, anyone, not one person who, who supports what's going on in Ukraine right now. But, um, I have a, a, uh, my husband and I, we have a, a small cabin on a lake in a small town of Astashka, where our closest neighbors, um, they're good friends. And, um, and a lot of their family members are military. And when we were going there, we were like, we're going to see these people. What are we going to say? And, and we kind of said, okay, they're military. They, they you know, that they, they, they took the oath. They, so we're just not going to discuss this with them. So, so, because before that, we're, anybody else, I'm like, I have no idea how to talk to a person who supports this war. You know, I, I, would, I would not want to be in the same room. But when we came to this family, obviously they knew, uh, they, they know a lot of my background and, uh, you know, that, that we didn't touch politics. But even with them, there is a... Uh, feeling of like what are we doing there a, you know a lack of purpose because the the, the you know the, the part of the disbelief is like what the hell <laughs> you know what, what why why are we you know why are people being killed civilians first of all but 
military too, you know, why are people being killed? Why are lives being destroyed? Why are homes being destroyed? You know, why do we have 3 million refugees? Uh, those are people with, you know, displaced homes, you know, with lives broken. Why? Nobody could clearly, including the, the media sources and the sources of mass propaganda in Russia, can clearly tell me, or you know, they don't even have a position except the, 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 the horrible, you know, word denazification. You know, what Nazis? Show me the Nazis. Where are the Nazis? Uh, who are the Nazis? Where are the trials? You know, it, it's, uh, you know, for, for Russians, I'm sure, as for Germans. And, and uh, you know, it's uh, the history of fascism is a very traumatic place mm-hmm. to go. Mm-hmm. And the, the use of that, that rhetoric Obviously, it's meant to stir up emotions. It meant to create strong feelings among Russians. But what I'm seeing now is, you know, we Russians now are, um, especially after the, the, the events of the last weekend, Zambucha, You know, we're going to be looked at as fascists. Mm. And for a, a, a Russian, um, that is one of the most horrible places to go. And, uh, you know, I... I, I, I was one of the people who, who always, always, you know, uh, four generations passed since World War II. At, and whenever I came across uh, Russians who kind of said, you know, equated Germans and fascists, and, and it's like be, having been brought up in the U.S. Uh, and, you know, in the U.S., in schools, and just when, when you're brought up, you, you, uh, it's part of your upbringing to be very conscious of discriminatory language. And uh, the U.S. shameful history of slavery. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, I was always very conscious to just like, you know, stop anyone in Russia to, 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 uh, to say Germans when they mean fascists. Yeah, it's like not the same thing. And now clearly Russians are going to be facing a very similar fate to to the pain the German population felt after Hitler. Mm-hmm. Wow. And that's yeah, thank you for I it, it, thank you for taking this on this journey also into the emotions what's the thinking, what's the feeling, um, you had, or CBSD had a team in Ukraine. What happened with them? Well, we have a, um, not a team, 
we we had a one full time uh, sales agent there. Um, you know, that, that's another painful thing to go to. Uh, after the, the 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 day we invaded um, Ukraine, and afterwards, I was reaching out to uh, this lady who has worked with, with and who knows me since 19, oh, I believe she joined CBSD in 2000. This is somebody who knows me well. Um, and I reached out to her and I'm like, how are you? Are you safe? And she picked up the phone only on the second or third day. And I, 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 I you know, it's hard to find words because mm-hmm. nothing compares to to what's going on in mm-hmm. Ukraine. Nothing compares. You know, when you're sitting in bomb shelters, and and she told me that she she can't leave her apartment in Kiev because uh, she has a very aged mother who is very who with who is not very mobile. So a lot of her family left Kiev and went to to safer territories. But she can't leave Kiev because she can't move her mom. And uh, and she can't even bring her mom to the bomb shelter when, when the sirens sound. And, um, and she said, I'm in the apartment. And I'm like, do you feel safe? She's like, of course not. Are you... Um, are you scared? She said, yes. And, you know, and then I'm like, Alona, I'm so sorry about what's going on. I, you know, we're with you, you know, whatever. You try to offer words of support. And she told me, she said, you know, can I be very honest with you, Anya? I'm like, of course, you know. And she's like, I wanted to, and as I said, this was like on the second or third day. Uh, of the invasion. And, uh, and she said, you know, uh, people are beginning to hate Russians. And I have to tell you, I'm beginning to hate Russians too. And I can understand her so much. Um, but this was a person who, who, as I said, who knows me well. And she obviously knows that in no way can I support what's going on. But this doesn't matter, Carson. And it, it doesn't matter. We are now uh, looked at as part of this violent, hateful force that ruined people's millions of lives and you know she she basically let me know in so many words you know don't call me anymore i don't want to talk to you and uh you know she 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 sent in her resignation we we um you know we uh paid her some kind of a uh it was a termination package, you know, whatever we could do at this time. But uh, that's just part of the horror of what's going on. 
we love Ukraine. I have to tell you this. We Russians love Ukraine. There is not one family who does not have friends, family, our languages. We understand each other when we speak, you know, in Russian or Ukrainian. Our cultures are intertwined. We eat the same food. To me, you know, um, I can't say this is a civil war because it's a different nation, but it, 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 it's still a fraternal war because it's, you know, um, it's, and these ties, you know, in what kind of Ukrainian is going to want to hear a Russian say, I love Ukraine now? Yeah, it, so, that's so, broken. So, over the last weeks, you turned from Anna, the colleague, the, the human being, to Anna, the Russian. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's going on uh, very much everywhere, all over the world. Mm. Uh, and th that's part of the... Um, and that's part of a thing that I think we have to be very careful. And not because, as I said, nothing compares with your children being killed by bombs. Nothing compares to uh, war crimes or civilian suffering or people being forced to flee, you know, uh, with just their necessary belongings, their kids, you know, leaving their pets to starve. <laughs> in in their the, you know their homes destroyed nothing compares to that there is nothing more horrible in in human history than war uh, but you know as the world and and hopefully putin does not succeed in breaking the world that as humans i think in the last uh decades after World War II, where we're trying to rebuild one common planet, connected. Um, the, the, there is a reason behind the, 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 the globalization, because, because the, the, the civilized nations knew that there is a need to move towards integration and common languages and common trade uh, roads. And, and, and that I think is falling, it is very quickly falling apart thanks to, to this one, you know, it's not a local conflict, unfortunately. And, and, uh, and what I think we have to be mindful of all of us, you know, Ukrainians too, is we don't want to let Putin destroy it all. You know, we have to be mindful that we don't start hating one another for who we are and not what we do. You know, when we start, um, that's where I think that's where I think that the, the, the starts of the most horrible human crimes start, you know, like such as genocide or um, 
it's when you start discriminating and hating and destroying a group of people for who they were born as opposed to what they do in life. And um, it's a lot of, I think, the actions that are being taken recently They have a very deep, you know, we're defending our values um, engine behind this. But we as humans still like to to, uh, form social groups and and move together. And, And... thoughtful and conscientious behind what you do. For example, like the, the, you know, part of what I'm talking about is the, 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 the business exodus of Russia. If you're McDonald's, okay. You know, if you want to show your stand fine, you know, but if you're a pharmaceutical company, uh, what does that do if you leave thousands of people dependent on your medication for life, you know? Um, if you're a media company, what does it mean that you leave people who, who are cut off from reliable sources of information as is, you know, with radio stations being shut down with, with what happens? Uh, even if you're a retailer, what kind of reaction is going to to happen when you leave um, the country? Okay, uh, when, for example, um, I can't buy, um, well, let's say dog food, you know, um, that my dog is used to, you know, and depends on because it's like, you know, it has like some kind of medicinal, um, whatever. The people who are, um, who support Putin, and obviously there are, there is a contingent of the population who, who, who supports Putin for whatever reasons, but, are they going to start thinking, oh, my God, we have a direct consequence of us going into Ukraine. And now, uh, you know, where this is the and maybe we shouldn't have done this. That That's not the line of thinking. Mm. You know, the, the line of thinking is and, and that's part of the propaganda machine that's working here. We have the common enemy, the West. And look at the what, what the Western companies are doing. Mm-hmm. So this is used to increase the divide, kind of. Um. Exactly, and, and it, it's it's the the effect of the sanctions. I mean, why are sanctions invoked? Is to make sure that by we're putting enough pressure on a particular state 
to to make sure that they consider these sanctions when making a choice in the course of action, or we affect the, the, the population uh, in enough, in such a manner that uh, we, we can affect some of the public opinion. What's happening right now, and I'm not saying a particular company has done something or that they shouldn't mm-hmm. have done, no, but as the conglomerate and the total snowball of what's going on, uh, it's going in a different direction that the effect of the sanctions. Putin is saying, I don't give a damn, right? And the Russian population, you know, the ones who support Putin, they're like, oh, the Westerners, they're showing their true spirit right now. And and people who 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 uh who are, are more thoughtful, I would say, or no, I'm not saying that ones are more thoughtful than the other, but but there is, but Putin who don't, you know, let's say they don't support military action. They're like, really, really, you're punishing me. That that's the emotional reaction, and then there is the thoughtful process of like, of I want to build a long term peaceful future, you know, and I am being prevented from doing that, and then there are people who who you know. Who actually, you know, who, who are saying all ties with Russia should be stopped? Cultural exchange, scientific exchange, uh, educational exchange, um, all kinds of relate sports, and I am a very I have become a strong believer in in the fact, not just recently, but. Uh, but a long time ago, that collective punishment, it, it is an easy road to go towards collective uh, discrimination mm. and collective hate. Yeah, I see your point. Mm-hmm. And Anna, the one thing that is missing for me in this picture, though, is what it, what has been or what is changing in the let's say possibility to express opinions because what we're not seeing so much is russians marching the streets we see that there is a, a brave lady with a cardboard standing in the russia television uh, with a marina avsenikova she's a hero <laughs> yeah stop the war i mean there but what what has changed what is also the risk that you entail when you're talking to me can you can you guide us through that uh there has been over uh the last year ever since navalny came back to russia um an ever increasing repression of the freedom to demonstrate freedom of expression uh and until probably this military action, until the war, and I would I, I want to use the word war because that's what accurately describes what's going on. Uh, there hasn't been really a feeling that there was a repression of freedom of speech. 
including a law that uh, spread of fakes uh, and fake news uh, regarding the war. Uh, and that, it, that includes social media posts, you know, that, that includes mostly related to media uh, so entities, but still, uh, there has been a, they're considering a legislation right now for actually uh, sanctions compliance. Like if you're a company operating in Russia and if you're complying with sanctions, U.S. sanctions or Western sanctions and friendly governments, uh, it's actually offense. And there's actually been criminalization of a lot of acts of peaceful civil disobedience and acts of just basically expression of opinion. And um, I, I, I have to tell you that for the first time since I came back to Russia in, in, uh, um, in the 90s, I'm actually mindful of what I say and where I say it. Not because if I say like, uh, mm, not because I'm afraid I'm immediately going to have my arms turned back and be sent to prison. But um, because I'm um, somebody who's visible in, 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 in you know, and, and um, like, for example, I was, I was having a discussion with my husband, like when, if we go to Crimea, to our house this summer, if we have to make sure and stay away from a lot of villagers who actually supported the, the Russians, you know, taking over Crimea. Uh, we don't know what their feelings are about the invasion of Ukraine, but um, for whatever personal reasons, you know, personal jealousy, or maybe, you know, I look in the wrong way at their garden uh, some years ago and they have some kind of a personal something against me, whatever, for whatever reasons, if they start, you know, they can actually harm me because the, 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 the Institute of, uh, um, what's, what, 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 what's the word for when I write an anonymous note? to official agencies, like she's the enemy of the state. Okay. Um, um, I, I can actually feel that I can be uh, harmed if somebody with the wrong intention decides to actually do something active against me, you know, mm. send a letter to the prosecutor, like, you know, CBSD is doing this or, or yeah, mm. or Anna Kieran personally is doing this. So, so uh, that, that's a first, that's a first that that's never been an issue. Yeah. There, there, there have been questions about like, you know, 
you can be arrested for a couple of days if you are part of a demonstration. I've been part of street demonstrations in Russia. Uh, at one point, it, when they the when Navalny's came back, when when Navalny came back, there were street demonstrations in Russia. They had a, a legislation and enacted where you where you it's was way too easy to to label you as a foreign agent. And I figured, no, 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 no. I have 60 people behind me. I have an uh, organization that's dependent on me. I can't be labeled as a foreign agent because that's actually going to harm our business. And so I didn't go out into the streets uh, for Navalny, even though I wanted to. Uh, nowadays, you know, people have been arrested for going out into a single PK with, with a blank piece of paper no words on it written nothing i'm just standing on the street and people are being arrested for that and the the sentences for for some of the acts that have been uh defined as criminal offenses are outrageous they're over 10 years uh so so yes it does feel for 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 the first time like our personal liberties are at risk. So the situation as you described, you know, there's the war on the one hand side, and then there is a, a, a war that is not fought with weapons. It's an extreme, it's like becoming more extreme, like suppression of opinion of speech of um, free expression. Um, also, the risk for you to be labeled as a Russian elsewhere, and, and what, what is coming or what you can expect uh, could come towards you. Now, if we, if we try to look at what could happen or what needs to happen to move to a ceasefire and move to eventually peace. Now, this seems to be almost unthinkable right now, right? But that must be the goal. So how can you make sense of that for yourself? How, what would, in your mind, what would need to happen to go one step in the direction of peace? That's an impossible question. Uh, I don't know. It's gone so far. It, it's gone so far that um, I think, first of all, ceasefire. You know, stop shooting. Um, to me, that's the most important thing. Uh, you know, only I think in complete ceasefire and a little bit, you know, ceasefire in the world, you know, a little bit of silence, I think around the world, just, you know, I, I think we need a moment of reflection because um, as a world, all of us, um, because I think this continuous spiral of escalation, it, 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 you know, it's provoking action after action after action after action. It's spiraling up. Exactly. And uh, with very... And a lot of our actions right now need a lot of thought behind them and a lot of analysis and a lot of probably, you know, 
talks that are not visible to everyone. You know, the general population does not need to to be part of every single conversation that that goes on. Uh, And I think the, the leaders of this world, they need this moment of silence as well, because everybody is dependent on somebody, you know, uh, uh, U.S. leadership is dependent on its electorate. Thank God. Uh, Zelensky, you know, is dependent on the population that is dependent on him. Uh, Putin has his own uh, stuff of crap to protect. Yeah. But you can't, you know, you can't uh, disregard his interest. He is right now, I think, uh, you know, he is responsible for a country with nuclear weapons, with a population of 150 million people. And no matter what, if we're in negotiate in any kind of negotiation, we cannot say we're part of a negotiation if there is a party whose interests we decide are not to be regarded. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's not called a negotiation anymore. So, so, so I think a ceasefire, a moment of silence, a moment of complete, you know, stop of all diplomatic and other actions. You know, and I, I would call to businesses to do the same. You know, just stop it. <laughs> Don't be part of the hype. Stop acting on your emotions and start thinking of long-term world effects and, and the planet that you want to live on. And, 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 and give give the people who actually have the power to do anything about the situation a moment to just, you know, talk behind the scenes, Mm -hmm. not report everything to the media, you know, not escalate it. We, We need to return to some sort of normalcy for, for at least in our minds, you know, Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that, I mean, there's different ways to fight a war, right? And part of the war of this is that you have the rhetoric on either side that kind of escalates level by level. Now, they, I think, I mean, it's hard to not come to Nazi Germany at one point in time, but I mean, the I think the global West or the, the not only the global West, also Russia has learned that appeasement policy during the time of Hitler has not worked very well. So the question is, what is on the one hand side not escalating all the time and neither appeasement and not retaliating um, the aggression, the war, the killing? Um, so that I'm not, I've, I've, I'm, not, I'm not sure if that's a question. I'm just saying, I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. either, Karsten. I have no idea. I'm just saying that when it feels like we're not giving enough chance to negotiation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that needs to happen. Absolutely. Anna, um, 
I cannot put in words the amount of respect that I have for you and your openness and how make how you make yourself also vulnerable with sharing your feelings, your opinions. So you have my full respect for this. Um, and it's hard to end this on a light note, but I would like to try nonetheless. So um, what's what's a question that I haven't asked you yet, Anna, that is important? Well, you haven't asked me about, you know, my kids. <laughs> so? Uh, yeah, well, I have four. Oh, no, four. Oh, no, I love your response. Oh, no. <laughs> we have four kids, too. This is why. Uh, well, that's why they all know. <laughs> uh, my oldest lives in the U.S. now. Uh, my youngest is 13. Is lives with us. Um, so, so part of why this is so emotional. Oh no, this I don't think this can can not be emotional. But you know, I have the fate of my children to consider, and I actually had a um, a uh, let's say a disagreement. Let's call it with my oldest daughter because she she kind of asked me. She said. You know, mom, why are you still there? And you, you know, you have Dasha to think about. You you have her to bring up. Why are you still there? And it was a hard conversation, you know, to have with my oldest daughter. And uh, and I I um I went back to my choices of the last decades. And and obviously, you know, any thoughtful person would ask themselves, did I make the right choice? Or should I pack my bags and go? And at one specifically very dark moment, uh, I actually bought a ticket for my youngest daughter uh, to the U.S. to go to join my oldest daughter. Uh, the next day I woke up and I'm like, no, she's 13. I'm not ready um to, to to do this and how long is the separation going to be months years and no i'm not ready she she needs she needs her mom still and i said i lost my mother when i was 19 it was a trauma uh, obviously a third uh and i went back to this choice i made to come live in this country and obviously, you know, um, my mother's words are still echoing, you know, they're resounding right now. It's like I went back and uh, I see, you know, I see so many things that I've worked for my whole life are just, they're gone, you know. Um, maybe not forever, but you can no longer make long-term plans. You can no longer think about, you know, I'm at the age when I actually think of like, what am I going to do if I retire? You know, uh, where am I going to live? You know, here's a house I built, you know, here's this, this is how I'm going to make my living. And um, no more to long-term plans. But we had conversations, you know, should we leave the country? Obviously, we, we have to have these conversations, especially I have two passports, right? I, I am I'm dual national. Um, and 
after weeks of reflection and sleepless nights, you know, I, I tell you, I couldn't fall asleep without sleeping aids uh, for a month for certain. Um, and a lot of crying. Uh, you know, my husband and I made the decision that, uh, and I made the decision. Actually, I had, you know, it's like, it's also not a decision you can make as a family, unfortunately. It's, it, everybody has to make their personal decision. And I made my personal decision that, no, my life still matters more here than anywhere else. I believe that educating global leaders, uh, humanistic leaders, people-oriented leaders, people who can negotiate or resolve conflicts uh, is more important than ever. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Yeah. And, and and my life still has more meaning here because I'm in this position. Uh, it's part of my fate, but I'm in this position that where I have 60 families reliant on me, but more than that, uh, there are tens of thousands of people who go through CBSD doors every day. Uh, still, actually, we actually have orders coming in, which is unbelievable. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, we, we're very proud to say that we educated uh, over half a million people over the course of our company's history. Kristen, what would have happened if we had educated 50 million people? You know, would we be looking at a different Russia right now? Mm. So, so I actually, you know... Uh, I actually went through this process of remaking this decision uh, to, to be here and to be part of the business. Hopefully we're going to be continuing the business. Um, I am very thankful to uh, the Ken Blanchard companies and Scott Blanchard personally for saying, uh, let's just, you know, make any rash decision, not make any rash decisions about leaving Russia. Um, because it, it, what we do is so important. So, uh, but I had to ask my husband, you know, what if worse comes to worse and I am faced with my mother's fate, you know, uh, and where I am forced to, to take my, uh, you know, my, my, my tooth, <laughs> my toothbrush and go, I'm going to go back home to the U S I speak the language. What are you going to do? Because it's a different decision for you. Sure. Yeah. And, and I'm going to accept anything you say, you know, whether you're going to go with me, but you have to realize it's going to be a very hard life for you there without, you know, you're going to be part, you're going to be a refugee there. Uh, he's a musician, so hopefully he maybe, you know, uh, music is an international. He, he's an oboe player in the Russian phonic. But, um, you know, and I will understand if you'll decide to stay in Russia, and I don't know, and uh, live whatever life is here. 
he said he'll follow me. <laughs> but, but, you know, those are the kind of conversations you have to have. But, but I will just, you know, pray we can continue what we're doing. And I can only pray that the situation is so unsustainable that it will end sooner than later. And then we all have a lot of work to do, Karsten, to rebuild a different world. Absolutely, absolutely. A lot of, a lot of peace work, a lot of trust work, a lot of forgiving, of grieving, um, yeah, on, on all sides, all parties involved. I mean, we have, I live obviously in Germany in a little village, and even here we have refugees. We had a welcome ceremony um, for refugees here on the weekend, uh, which is unheard of. I mean, that's that's something that I've never heard of happening before. And that creates a lot of other discussions on our side. But uh, I think, yeah, this healing will take a long time. Yeah. Absolutely. Anna, thank you so much. Um, please let us be in touch. Uh, let's have a conversation how this unfolds. Um, and yeah, I wish you all the best. Um, and you too. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you, Karsten. It was a pleasure to, to speak with you. You're welcome. Bye, Anna. Bye for now. I have tons of respect for Anna, I have to say. Um, I'm not sure if I would be brave enough to speak up in such a situation. I think it is very hard to judge from the outside world when you not live in such a country to really see would I have the guts to open up, to speak up, and to call a war a war when it, when it deserves to be called like this. And what I also admire in her is she, she really, I could feel the ambivalence inside of her. On the one hand side, being a Russian, um, being a patriot um, for her country, being friends with Ukraine, with Ukrainians, having close ties to the country, And then also um, this feeling of what does it do to me as an individual? What does it do to me to uh, a leader of my business? Um, what it does to the country, what it does to the, uh, the brother country of Ukraine. Um, so I think that is a very good inside view on this, in this psyche um, of, a, of a business leader and a reflected human being, um, I think, which is, which is very valuable. And I'm very happy that we had this conversation. Um, and we will be in touch. So we will see how this unfolds. And we certainly will be in touch in a couple of months time to see how things have developed on both sides. So uh, what are your thoughts? What are your reflections? Send us a note. Um, let us know. Um, please email us at leaderstalk at leadership-choices.com. And now thank you so much for listening. And uh, please stay safe, stay healthy, and talk to you soon. This was an episode of Leaders Talk, the interview podcast portraying leaders who are committed to better leadership, better organizations, and a better world, powered by Leadership Choices.